0: So good evening. Um, tonight I'm going to offer a, an overview or one way of thinking of an overview of the soul-making dharma or a soul-making dharma. And I invite you to, as much as you can, listen with as much of you as you can bring to the cushion tonight. Please listen with your ears With your hearts, with your bright and curious minds, even if they sometimes feel dull, and with your body, and all the spaces in your body, so that this overview, this uh, attention to some of the framework of this, what I find is a, a beautiful, beautiful teaching. can be a framework that is not something that has to draw us out and away, as frameworks, conceptual frameworks can, and sometimes we've been taught that way of thinking about concepts, right? That their very power is in their capacity to abstract and pull and draw us away so we get a good view on something, we get the overview. And that is brilliant gift it's one of in that poem last night that rob read from somebody that's part of the brilliance of the modern mind actually so yes and we haven't finished making ourselves (laughs) probably we never will so this can be an overview yes where we can look and we get perspective and we can see from the distance that that gives us and we can be inside of it from the ground up, right through our bones and our flesh and our heart. Restoring, in a sense, Logos, which I believe this paradigm does. Restoring Logos, the framework, to their divine root, their truly divine root. So listen with as much of you you as you can bring. It quite feels like quite a big task. <laughs> Which a couple of weeks, Rob, Rob, a couple of weeks ago, Rob said, "You do the overview." <laughs> so, I, okay, only took you about two hundred and fifty hours. <laughs> okay, so, but I'm also really feel privileged to be. And I agreed, you know, he didn't just uh, declare it from on high. um, Yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to do that. So a soul-making dhamma, what is it in the service of? Soulfulness. Soulfulness, and what is soulfulness? Soulfulness is the capacity to see and sense anything, in ways that bring more riches to the table, that brings out and perceives more beauty, that restores things to the sacred and opens up perceptions of the sacred and that idea itself. Soulfulness is ways of seeing that are resonant with us, that are meaningful to us in ways that strike us very intimately. That it's it's more than meaning that we're given, but meaningfulness that satisfies our soul. And this age can be seen as one that is hungry for meaningfulness in the deserts sometimes of post-modern brilliance, we can be hungry still for meaningfulness. Why? Well, that was a good reason in itself, wasn't it? Maybe I don't need to say more. But I will. Mm -hmm. But I will. The Dhamma, one of its I see as both its robustness and its flexibility through the ages. If you look at the Buddha Dharma, always responds and meets the place it goes to, the culture it lands in, the time, the era that it meets. It's as one Zen story goes, what, what was the Buddha doing during her lifetime? And the response from the Zen master was, So the question is, to the student, to the Zen master, what was the Buddha doing during her lifetime? And the response from the Zen master was an appropriate response. Very nice and brief in that tradition sometimes. An appropriate response. And we can see that the Dhamma... um, That's for it to be dharma, for it to be alive, for it to take root. It has to be responsive. Like any intelligence really has to be responsive. Responsive both to the suffering and the crises that it meets and responsive also to the gifts and the sensibilities and the inheritances that are there within that culture. You see that. Probably you know that. You don't have to know a lot of the history of the Dhamma, but you can see the way. It looks actually really different in different cultures that it has gone to. We named a little bit last night some of the crises of our era, which are not any longer limited to the lands that we come from, this Modern mind has spread in its brilliance and its tragedy, so to speak. The climate disruption and whole-scale environmental collapses, happening and on the brink of happening more. Massive inequality. Yes, there's been always inequality. It's massive. Wars over resources, hunger for belonging and meaningfulness. And what of our gifts and sensibilities and things that are important to anyone who sees themselves as a product of the Western inheritance? Self. Self, 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 self. (laughs) We know the perils. We know the perils or we wouldn't have come to the Dhamma in the first place. We know the limitations of that when the self is conceived in this tightening and small and narrow way that we're given to believe that we are often. We know the perils individually and collectively. Maybe we don't know all of them. I'm sure we don't, but here's some of them. The pain of the loneliness and the isolation, the epidemic in loneliness and isolation is documented now in Western press regularly. We know the perils of the self-importance that can come where that narrowed sense of self can do its dominating thing in the world, in all the w- ways that can happen. We know the pain of the loss of relationship with the collective, with the tribe, with belonging, with the earth, the loss of connection to the sacred that the modern self, postmodern postmodern self, doesn't seem to have room for so much the loss of connection in many ways to what is more than me. Yes, we have it and we call for it and we treasure it when it's there, but how much dimensionality do we have to the more than me, that which is more than me? And we know as Dharma practitioners that this problematic self We can understand the paradigm and the practice and understanding of letting that go. And what a relief that is. And that's probably why you all hung around long enough in the Dharma. What a blessed relief. Liberative knowing to whatever extent we have deepened in that spectrum of unbinding. What a blessed relief. And we love that. And we know that. And maybe many of us here want something more as well. There's something about that idea of self. Yes, there's the perils. Yes, it can be unbinded and dissolved, unbound and dissolved. But there's something about it that may strike us as important if we could only know it and see it in the right way. Our particular proclivities, our gifts, our uniqueness, really? Is it all a problem or just you dissolve it? Is that it? Really? Is that the binary we're given? Or yes, you can have some good things about it, but it doesn't really have a place, a really a place in the sacred, in a sacred framework. So if that's what we seek, Some place, some meaningfulness to our nexus, our particular nexus of the cosmos, then for me, this soul making Dharma addresses and um, restores, restores us in our particularities, our peculiarities our gifts and our weaknesses, all of it, all of it. That's blessed (laughs) to me. That's blessed. Most of us recognize, I think, as people who look into things, we recognize, I would say, the need to serve something more than us, to devote ourselves to something more than us. And many of you do in many, many ways in your lives. The, the more than me. I believe, although I've never actually found the quote but it's from Kitty Saro would say many times that the Buddha said, and maybe someone can help me out with this, something like, someone who doesn't have something to serve lives unhappily. Something about that offering, in whatever way that is conceived, it can be in the quiet work of our contemplative work, if that is really in the service of the more than us. It can be in the great gestures in our in our work. It can be in the small ways we get up in the morning and serve our family. Whatever, it's not prescribed, but that serving, that offering to the more than me. But that more than me... how we conceive of that more than me is really crucial and I would say directly correlate to how much spirit that service can be infused with. If my conception of the more than me is not dimensional, is not psyche for my eros, is not beautiful and beloved to me and I want to offer more and more and more, if my conception of the more than me is small, and limited, then correlating to that will be my passion and my zeal and my spirit will be small. And small and big here doesn't mean in terms of conventional small and big. It's dimensionality, richnesses, beauty, depth, meaning. And for I I see that the soul making Dharma serves to fertilize and open up this conception of the more than me in ways that will allow the zeal and the eros and the passion to burn with devotion to serve what we're called to serve. And that satisfies the soul. As you know, I may not be telling you something new what I might be, or I might be framing it in such a way as how this work can really be in the service of this. Selves, service and desire. A recent analysis of the earth crisis described our predicament as a crisis of misplaced desire. And it doesn't need me to tell you how that looks. The destruction caused by rampant consumerism and self-serving desire. And in the Dharma path, we see the suffering born of desire, of greed and grasping to the particular things of this world, and practice letting go of grasping and greed for the particular things of this world. And this could seem like a possible answer or one possible answer to the crises of greed and the crises of misplaced desire. The Dhamma path is a renunciate path. And we are supported and need desire for this path. In fact, practitioners who go deep in this Dhamma path are passionate people. We need the kind of zeal to rouse the energy to do the work that it takes. And so we are supported to desire to let go, to desire release, to to desire unbinding the tangle that grasping spins us into. But many can be left suspicious of desire or confused by its place in our lives. Sometimes applying too blunt an instrument equating letting go of grasping with the putting away of all desire. And one consequence of this is the withdrawal of all erotic love from the world of particular appearances in the name of practice. Or, not everybody may do that, but some, or to different degrees we may do that, sometimes one may be confused then about why one cannot put away desire for the things of this world. You know, and that can lead to a lot of pain of a kind of splitting my spiritual practice, and I do that here and then I go and desire and you know, live my desire over here, you know. When we see that in spiritual traditions it can be lead to a lot of pain or sometimes that people think, of course, of course I love and have desire for the particulars of this world, for people and things, but haven't necessarily found a satisfactory way to square it completely with their Dharma practice and framework. Soul-making Dharma restores our desire for particulars in a way that's congruent with a path of practice and I would say that in so doing, it offers a way to restore and expand senses of sacredness to the particulars of this world as they appear, inner and outer, to the immediate presentation of something. And in this way, our desire for signs and particulars, this is a translation of uh, that you hear it, from the teachings of the Buddha, that recognizing that that's exactly where we get snagged in the signs and particulars, the sort of features of something, is where our desire and grasping can be attracted to, and our attention narrows down, and then we get into a complete tangle. But I would say that in a, in a soul-making. T- Dharma, our desire for signs and particulars can be intelligent, can be in line with practice, can lead onward, and can revivify our spirit to serve the more than me. And I would say, gives desire a place that is responsive to the times we live in. A soul making Dharma, why? Why, why bother? I mean, I think I've answered that in many ways, but the short answer, a short answer, if we recognize that our perception of the world arises dependently with our way of looking, so there is always a way of looking, then the question is, how are we looking and what is that way of looking bringing into being? What is that way of looking giving rise to, birthing? And if we wish to see in ways that bring more sacredness and meaningfulness, maybe also recognising that this has wider implications for our world, then this is reason enough why we might practice a soul-making dhamma. And why personally, and speaking personally, because we need to make our practice personal, Why? Because personally I find it beautiful, I find this framework and practice beautiful and what is born from these ways of looking that can be cultivated, I find that beautiful and I feel called to serve that beauty. Beauty here is more than adornment. Beauty here is more than decoration or a conventional view of beauty. It's more than something helpful on the side that can help one in a life that one conceives of as not beautiful. And it is a beauty more than the poignant feeling of beauty that can arise in a heart that's open to tragedy or inevitable loss. This is a beauty that is generative and inspiring, like the beauties that inspired the poets and artists of old. (laughs) Probably still do, but these are the the tales that I think of, the, the beauty that inspired the poets and artists of old. And this is a beauty that is not divorced from justice, from truth, from intelligence, it is not separate from the crisis of our inner and outer worlds. It is a beauty that can vivify our spirit and inspire and energize us to serve. Soulmaking making Dharma opens our narratives of who we are as individuals and potentially who we are collectively. Images, archetypes, narratives that we present to ourselves, and we do, we invariably do, present images, stories, and archetypes to ourselves all the time. They act as beacons guiding us into the future, shaping our perception of ourself in relation to everything. In the time of the Buddha, I don't imagine, I don't imagine, I don't know, that the question, who are we as a species, Ananda, are we just, uh, biological organisms in a meaningless cosmos? What do you think? Say not so, Ananda. You know, they, I, I, the, I don't think he needed that question. It wasn't a response they needed. He wouldn't have conceived of his world. The crises that he faced were not, were going to be, I imagine, localized. But we may be having to ask ourselves this question, or maybe you are, maybe we are, and the narratives and the images and the archetypes we bring to the table to that narrative are part of the images that get carried forward of who we are as a species, individually also. And they are the stories and narratives and images that we leave for our children and those who come after us. So our practice, this sitting on the cushion, whatever you want to do with your perception, this is one way we can serve those who come after us. With what legacy we give them in terms of who we found out we could be when we were, when we knew our active participation in the stories and images that we tell ourselves about what we are. This is the bit where my writing has got really small. That's where the glasses come on there. I want to remind you of a couple of sentences from the Sutta on right view to Kachayana from the Buddha. As one of the um, key, actually, roots and foundations and doorways into this practice, of soul-making dhamma, as we see it. There are many ways the term soul-making is used. But this soul-making dhamma has a root um, in this teaching. A deep, deep root. By and large, kachayana... Is that the right way of saying it? Huh? <laughs> Again? <laughs> By and large, Kachayana, this world is supported by a polarity, that of existence and non-existence. But when one sees the origination of the world as it actually is with right discernment, non-existence, with reference to the world, does not occur to one. And when one sees the cessation of the world as it actually is with right discernment, Existence, with reference to the world, does not occur to one. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. So feel this. You know, the, of course, you know, we have these kind of binary orientations. That's fine. We, you know, they, they have a place, but they do not want to rule our world. Right? You wanna hear I want to hear that again. I, I never heard someone sing a hymn at the end of that. That's really I think that's very appropriate. <laughs> by and large, Kachayana, this world is supported by a polarity, that of existence, I'll have it on this side this time. Existence and non existence. But when one sees the origination of the world as it actually is with right discernment, non existence non existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. When one sees the cessation of the world as it actually is with right discernment, existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. Everything exists, that is one extreme. Everything doesn't exist, that is the second extreme. Avoiding these two extremes that a targeter teaches the Dhamma via the middle way. Sense down your midline for a minute. Have you got your vertical? Feel any response, yes, in your body, in your heart, in your hands, in your mind. Open the energy body if it collapsed at all. <laughs> Gather it in if it spun out. I like that. Hallelujah. (laughs) And from there, I offer three appraisals for us of three key themes in our soul-making Dhamma for us to consider. And I'm going to speak a little bit about each of them and sense them too from this place, from this understanding, the Dhamma of the Middle Way. To whatever extent you understand that, Or whatever extent it strikes you, that you may be attracted to that or maybe you're not. But let something of it in. And the three pieces I'd like to speak about start. The first one is about the necessity of imagination. Imagination for a soul-making dhamma. Many definitions, but I'm going to offer one. Is your, our, creative power to imagine something that is not obvious or yet apparent. The creative power to imagine something that is not obvious or yet apparent. And this includes your ways of thinking and perceiving. Why is this necessary in a soul-making dharma? You know, probably many of you, but I offer you some thoughts. Why is imagination necessary in a soul-making dharma? Actually, that's the wrong question for this part that I'd like to read. This is actually uh, its place in a soul-making dharma. So firstly, we're really bringing Imagination and that capacity right to the table, right to the center of the table as a, as a fully paid up member of the party. This way of knowing restored, restored to spiritual practice, actually, in all the ways it can be there, restored and legitimized, not only as something that can aid the practices I already know, which it can, we can use skillfully. Use our imagination in all the practices we have already. Metta, uh, all the brahmaviharas are beautifully supported when we really open our imagination. But also to restore this as a spiritual faculty, right? So not something that just aids, but a faculty, a way of knowing in itself, a sensibility and a capacity to bring that right to the center of the table. We'll say more about this and what image means, but I would really encourage you, especially if you're new to the soul-making dharma, if you're not, you won't need any um, maybe support in this, but to be really flexible with the term imagination itself. Right? That we're not limiting it even to what we've known it to be. That it just means things, you know, images happening in my mind or it just means when I have a good idea about what I'm going to do tomorrow or having a soulful relationship with imagination itself. We don't limit imagination even. Can you see that? Imagination is something that doesn't limit but we want to have a relationship with our own capacity where we don't limit ourselves in that way. And how can we let this faculty um, be soulful in our engagement with this practice? How can we be skillful with it and how can it be soulful? How can it, we make sure it doesn't just become a kind of papancha fest, you know, a kind of a spinning out in this way that our, um, well, I don't need to tell you about Papancha, do I? (laughs) If I do. I don't. (laughs) We want our imagination firstly to be rooted with our body, Right? And not just a spinning, not just, not even the spinning, just into these, sometimes these little corners of our mind, but really deeply, deeply rooted with our flesh and our bones and our blood deep into the earth. Then even our ideas about whose imagination it is and who it belongs to can also open up this idea that it's my imagination. As my mum used to say, who died and left it to you? Right? When we say, when I'd say my, it's my, who died and left it to you, (laughs) she'd say. When we think it's my imagination. For us to remember the dharma of the middle way and one of the implications of emptiness That there is not one final correct way of seeing anything. There is not one final perception that where we've nailed anything, let alone soulfulness. So that we don't then reify the images that arise. We don't have to put them into that category of real or not real. Having that root in emptiness allows our imagination to be fertile and safe, actually, and wise. Even if it can be wild. That this imagination can be hand in hand with other ways of knowing our heartfulness must be our bright intellect to be discerning and specific with it. It must be with our instinct to have a sense of and our intuition of what's just, what, what's possible here. That we join ourself up, we join the dots of different sensibilities and ways of knowing. But I want to pay um, some acknowledgement to our suspicion some of us, and in the culture at large around imagination. It's important to speak about that. In the West, as modern Westerners, some of the suspicion around uh, imagination or its marginalization or sidelining is because it has been unvalidated as a way of knowing. And as the, the rational, empirical ways of knowing have taken the privileged spot, it has fallen away. Right? Fallen away. Sometimes it's been actually systematically denigrated, um, and systematically pushed out, actually. And, and, and sometimes violently. That those who had those kinds of gifts, you know, so there's a legacy that we have there, not only of that privileging of certain ways of knowing, but the pain that comes at the, at the same time as those privileged ways of knowing, um, took precedency for all their brilliance. And as Dharma practitioners, we know, we know we can be suspicious of imagination too, because it can send us up a gum tree. I mean, you know, it, it can, it can, there's suspicion of imagination in the Dharma because unreined in without wisdom, this can build worlds of self, other, that are, you know, not soulful and not wise and stuck and hellish and just plain dukkha. It's important to acknowledge where we may have limited its scope, and in this practice, we want to open the scope for imagination not rein it in so tightly. Yes, we want wisdom, but we want to open the scope to recognize that it has always been important in history for any of the great leaps forward that societies have made. Those great visionaries have stories of great and fertile and fecund imaginations, where advances in science, in medicine, in all those, in the astronomy, these kind of wild imaginations for people to kind of break through and open to new ways of understanding that have benefited us. So we invite you and we can invite each other to go beyond the literalisms, that actually imagination can be that gift that can serve us to go beyond our binary literalizing of real and not real. It's with that gift of being able to imagine something not obvious or yet apparent that allows us to reconceive and re-enter All our ideas and the ways we have literalized anything. Literalized the sense of the other. Literalized the sense of, even in Dharma concepts, how we think about things like sense contact. How we think about experiences of body. What if we bring our imagination into all of those? Not saying we know better, but to meet in a soulful way. What can be possible for us individually and collectively? So, please, you probably didn't come without an imagination. Even if you don't think you have lots of inner images, that's not the only way imagination shows up. Imagination shows up by being willing to come here and go, Oh, let's see. Let's see. I sense, I intuit something just beyond the edges here for me. And I'm attracted to that. (coughs) <coughs> I want to speak about the second concept I touched a little bit when I called desire into the frame, but Eros. Eros, the god, the divinity. Where, eros, again, can be defined in many ways in different um circles but the definition the working definition that we're using is eros is a force and attraction of loving desire so i'd like you to just to sense your bodies as we bring this one in as well really sense your vertical and sense your bodies and when i bring the concept in let it not be abstract for you I suspect everyone in this room knows something about Eros. Even if it went astray. Even if it led you down, holes you, wonder if you wanted to go down, right? But everyone here knows something about Eros. You will have some kind of Eros for your past to have been on it this long, right? Bring, as I speak about Eros, bring your own knowledge of Eros, including your sexual Eros. That's included here. Bring it into the room so it doesn't remain an abstract thing. We'll apply later in a minute once it's quiet and I can sit on my own. Bring your, bring your, bring your Eros here. Sense your belly. Breathe a moment into your belly. We want a soul-making Dharma. We want our love with mysterious other beloved beyonds not to only be with our heart and our head and the reaches of the sky. We want our hips and our pelvis and our sexuality and our fecundity and our juiciness and our... We don't have to make that other binary that's been made in typically also in the Western spiritual heritages. You can either have, even though they speak around it differently, but there's a kind of a split. You can have love for God or you can have love for you. at least in the Christian heritage. I don't know if it's the same in Judaism or not, but you can have love for God. And if you really have love for God, then you do the renunciate thing. And then you can be married and have a family, but, you know, slightly secondary. Or it's hard to have both, you know what I mean? So this is, um, bring your hips, and if you want both, why not let yourself want both, right? So the force of attraction and loving desire for the one who is the object of that attraction, your beloved other, others, your beloved others. And it is the desire for more contact, more connection, more knowledge, more touching, more intimacy with this beloved other. I think you probably know when that gets switched on in you. And we want this switch on. We need this switch-on for a soul-making dhamma. This eros ignites and switch-on turns on. So that that phrase, to be turned on, doesn't only have to be put to the sexual domain. It includes that. But to be switched on, imagine all of that yummy, passionate... Again, imagine all of that in the service of your practice, in the service of your desire for the unfabricated and for the fabricated. Imagine that, that switch-on in that service. So we want our eros, and for for many of us, that's maybe going to involve some healing, some healing around how that has been related to from us, with us, in us, through us. And if we want the soul-making, then that will be part of the work that we will be doing. We'll say more about desire. It's such a key piece of the igniting and switching on of what we call the Eros Psyche and Logos dynamic. So I'm aware it's the first night. Let's see if we can switch on a little bit. First night, Dharma talk, you've had a long day. Probably some of you are still tired. Let's see what we need. What do you need to switch on? Because that's in the soul-making paradigm. That's what we need to get skillful with. What can I bring to mind right now? What can I actually draw in and call upon to actually turn me on? To switch on this spark that brought you here? And there are some questions that can serve that. What are you devoted to? What do you love and are devoted to, that switches on that ignition. Maybe in your heart, maybe in your loins, maybe in your head. And at this point, do not have to screen or censor what comes as image for you. What or who, somebody last night said, did we ask this question? Somebody's, yeah, what brings you here? Somebody said beauty. See what comes to you. It doesn't, it might be a concept, it might be a person, it might be an image, it might be a work you do, it might be, where is your love and your desire in your life? Or where is it here since you've been here? And bring that to mind. Let it become image for you. The subtlest, Eros isn't always on fire with fireworks. It can be really subtle. It can be really intense. One isn't better than the other. But we need to know what lets me switch on. So this Eros psyche, Logos dynamic can start moving. Breathe with your bodies. So that this discussion about Eros isn't abstract either. God forbid. And yes, there is suspicion of Eros. And maybe I don't need to say too much more but attraction, the force of attraction to things in the world, that does not get supported in our Dhamma. We have a Dhamma whose Logos, which we can train in and has a real place for understanding, to understand the particulars of things as not places to delight in, but to, to withdraw, in a sense, or take away our holy fire, from the things of this world. Why? Because we can get bound up and in a horrible mess with it. Right? That force of attraction is powerful, not to be underestimated, and it can bind us in a flash, and we can be spun out and in hell before we know it. Our heritage of the Western heritage, even if we're adamantly secular, that can still be seen as the most recent iteration of our Western heritage. The Western heritage built in a sense, really on a, on a premise of a sky god. You know, that the divine is up there. The hips and the earth aren't where it's at. If you want the divine, they can be fun and, you know, lots of trouble and, but the divinity's up there. So Eros, which uh, uh, one of the ways Jung referred to Eros, is the cosmogonos, the the gonos, the generator, the generator, generator of the cosmos. That wasn't what we we're trying to do. We want to go to God, and God's up there somewhere. And even if you think you're well past that story, even our privileging of the intellectual centers and the looking up for responses is the same heritage. It's the same heritage. People are suspicious of Eros and institutions are suspicious of Eros because if you look also in our history, we see that when Eros arises in the people, there's a force of spirit that tends to break through institutions and vessels and ways that have been um, agreed upon so far. It's powerful. It's powerful. And it doesn't, it wasn't always the, the domain of those who were in the power. It would often come through the people and start to break through, um, the, the sort of rigidities of whatever structures were ready to be opened up. So we can be suspicious of it in that way. It's like, whoa, what's going to happen if, if Eros is allowed on the cushion? And many of you know already, you're not new to this. It's powerful. It's powerful and beautiful. And when our Eros is restored and we conceive it in the Dhamma of the middle way and his, her, their root is restored to earth and to sky, Eros is a cosmogonos, a generator of the cosmos, a world maker, making new worlds. So let's do our work together to restore Eros to our cushion for the unfabricated, for the fabricated, for the particulars, for whatever turns you on. I have one teacher from a whole other tradition, and he's this really kind of, he's brilliant, and he's this really ordinary guy. And he sits there, and he's very smart, and he sits there and was talking about he was talking about Eros in a different context, different paradigm, but nonetheless he said, Yeah. I think I'm turned on about eighty five percent of the time. She <laughs> didn't say it like that, I didn't do it very well. It was much sweeter than that. Yeah, I think I'm turned on about eighty five percent of the time. Dear students. So beautiful. So beautiful. we'll say more I think I'll skip some of my small print so we can do a little more the third concept here is concept itself and conceptual framework so this morning I said please pay attention to the bits where you switch on the bits where you turn on the bits where you turn off concepts and conceptual frameworks for some of us will be the bit where we turn on and for some of us depending on our history are the bit where we turn off hands up if you've been one of those people in your life (laughs) you don't have to but I want you to know this we're differently engaged we're differently attracted we're differently turned on I have recently become turned on by conceptual frameworks and I really like it (laughs) In the last three, four years, I would say. Of course, they're always operative anyway, right? But actually as an object, as psyche for my eros, as something that is beautiful, that, that, that leads onwards to unfathomable dimensions and open soul. Amen. Hallelujah. To the, I'm, what do you call my, my, I'm a, a, a revival movement for conceptual frameworks. <laughs> Can have the hallelujah part. <laughs> we can have the hallelujah part for conceptual frameworks. If you're someone who always goes in that way, you can tune down a little bit now. No, you can you can still turn up. You can still turn up your your too. But know where you are in relation to all this. Cool. You can see how much I like it now because it's got even smaller print because there's so, <laughs> there's so, there's so much on it. <laughs> Oh dear. Isn't it funny? So now I'm on the bit about conceptual frameworks and I put my glasses on and put my head down. Right. Okay, this is the serious bit. I want you to get Oh dear We could just love them instead, couldn't we? It's like, I think I I think I have a different approach. Let's just do the We'll just do the devotional practice for, for conceptual frameworks. <laughs> it's a little easier for me. <laughs> ah. Sense your body, sense your heart. I was looking at the definitions. I'm... Um, as I'm prone to do these days, I was looking up the definitions about concepts and conceptual frameworks and it's had such a different The idea about ideas has really changed how we think of them. You know, that idea that ideas are those things that you kind of abstract and draw away and abstract ideas. That's not been the history of the word idea at all. You know. So many beautiful conceptions about idea. I'm just going to offer a couple of them. Yes, we want the ability for the overview. Absolutely. I don't want to have to just pull that down. Not at all. Not at all. Let's, let me offer you these ones. So conceptus in Latin has the connotation of gathering and collecting. Concipere. To take in, to take something in, to hold and to become pregnant, to become pregnant with something. I even found this beautiful understanding of the word theory. And you know how we use the word theory to mean provisional, like there's a theory about something. It's not the truth yet. We're on the way to the truth when we can assert the way things really are. But in the meantime, we have the theory. And you might be able to hear it in the in the etymology of theos. It has the theo in it, the god part in it. Theor, theorin meant to look at, um, in relation initially in the Greek era, to the stage to where the divine theater was being played. So initially a theory, a theorin, was to look to spec, be the spectator of the stage of the theater where the theater of the gods was being played. Theon, Theon, the divine, oras, to see, I see, that the word theory we can really bring into its divine roots goes from that blunt looking at, that can have that slightly objectifying quality to it, or very objectifying quality to it, to becoming, to be able to contemplate the Divine through Divine Things. So those spectating at the theatre contemplating the Divine in Divine Things. Theory. If we acknowledge that there is that concept is inevitable, there's we've passed the time where we think there's just an objective way of seeing. If we acknowledge that concept is inevitable even in the finest, refined moments of our practice, subtle concept, subtle sense of a thing, of self, of other. If we acknowledge the power of concepts, the power of concepts to shape our ways of seeing, to actually be like gu- guiding rails, shaping whatever lenses we then see each other and the world with. They have power. And that's part of our can be part of our suspicion of them. Those who've had the privileged positions have told us how to see things. Right? And then we can want to rail against that. If we acknowledge that it's there anyway, if we acknowledge it's powerful, then we want to take care with what concepts and what conceptual frameworks we bring that we inevitably engage with. And what concepts and what conceptual frameworks will support a Dhamma of soul-making? Which conceptions will support us to see in ways that bring more beauty, depth, richness? This is what we will be looking at. Maybe I'll just say one of the suspicions. There are many, for those of us who've been suspicious or ambivalent about concepts in our life. I think one, again, in acknowledging the power that those who have been given the power to say what narratives go, what narratives are allowed, what are our dogmas, that there's been wounding there. There's been a lot of wounding there. And if we have felt ourself or our ancestors or have been at the margins of those privileged positions, of which I am now in that privileged seat, acknowledging for ourself and for our world the healing necessary where that privileging of ways of looking that can look up from a privileged distance and look at from a privileged distance how they have objectified bodies and matter how it has privileged the ocular sense the eyes privileging the eyes of coming up and this way of seeing denigrating and losing, and putting to lesser kinds of intelligence, our sense of touch, the way we meet the world of form directly. A soul-making Dharma will expose our wounds to learning, if we have some. Our ambivalences about learning, because it asks us to really see the beauty and necessity of conceiving. The beauty and necessity of conceiving to be able to enter and make worlds that bring soul. We need a womb. We need a framework. A logos, a conceptual framework is like a womb that needs to be fertile enough. Fertile, that was my gesture for fertile. Flexible enough, robust enough, fertile enough for soul to be made. So let's do our work, those of us who need, in healing our wounds around learning. And for those who always, who have found that way of knowing easy and accessible or had a lot of privilege through it, to just check that the other doorways of knowing are included.